0: Plug in and get connected to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we cultivate travel insight through intelligent conversation. Mount
1: Kailash, located in western Tibet, is considered to be sacred by Hindus, Bonds, Buddhists, and Jains. It towers at 6,638 meters, and for Buddhists, represents Mount Meru, is central to its cosmology and a major pilgrimage site for worshippers. One of those traditions involves trekking around its base, clockwise for Buddhists and Hindus, along its 52-kilometer path, seeking good luck and fortune along the way. The trip passes through remote lands over a 5,500-meter pass and typically takes about four days. Today we'll chat with legendary traveler and writer Joe Cummings about his circumnavigation around it in 2015, from Bangkok, Thailand. I'm Scott Coates, and with me, as
0: always, is Hey, Scott Trevor Ranges here in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Now, I'm uh, sad to say that I won't be able to join you for your interview with Joe. But you know, I've looked over his photos that we're going to share on the gallery, and I've looked at Google Maps of about all this adventure, and uh, and it seems like a pretty impressive thing to do.
1: Yeah, indeed. I've known about it for I don't know a decade or so from when I started going to Nepal to lead trips for guests, you know, uh, I don't know, back in the mid 2000s, been there 10 times or so, Annapurna range and so forth. And yeah, I heard about it. I actually want to go there from the Humla region. Humla is in western Nepal. And I guess you can fly to a remote airport there and then trek north and with a special permit, get uh, across the border into Tibet. So it's something that I've heard about. I don't know a ton about. And I knew that Joe did a few years ago. So yeah, it, it's kind of cool. It's a very remote place and and a holy place as well. How about you? Have you been out that way at all?
0: No, you know, I mean, I know you've spent quite a bit of time in Nepal, and I've never been in Nepal or or Tibet, or I haven't even seen snow in more than 25 years now. But, you know, <laughs> I, I spent the first half of my life up in the mountains, and uh, I, I've done a lot of backcountry skiing and camping up on top of some pretty, I mean, like more than 3,000 meter peaks. And I've always really had this really spiritual connection to the mountains. Um, so, you know, that, that being up amongst these massive mountains on a remote area and, and I don't know, just it's a really awe-inspiring and spiritual feeling. So I do have some understanding of of how the people in in Tibet and Nepal and these areas of uh, Asia could have these really spiritual connections to to the mountains. So, you know, I I really would love to do something like this. I don't know if I'm going to go to Mount Kailash and walk 52 miles around the base as like a pilgrimage, but I, you know, I kind of feel like I should make it to that part of the world at some point in my life to to kind of gain an appreciation for, for the peace.
1: Yeah, I've been lucky enough to, on a few occasions, spend time kind of over 4,000 meters. I think I've been to 5,003. And there is something really kind of special being in those high remote places around some of the world's biggest mountains. But uh, hey, let's uh, get right to the expert who's done it. Joe Cummings has been living and working in Southeast Asia for decades. He originally came to Thailand to serve in the Peace Corps, then he returned to his native USA to attain a Master of Arts in South Asian Civilization with concentrations in Thai language and Southeast Asian art history. He's the original Lonely Planet Thailand guidebook writer, but has also written tons of other regional subjects, consults on movie projects in the region, regularly jams with a Rolling Stones tribute band, the Midnight Ramblers. and and has walked around Mount Kailash in Tibet. He joins us today from his apartment in Bangkok. Nice to see you again, Joe. Yes, thanks for having me again, Scott. Yeah, you've always been super generous with your time. Trevor and I touched on it in our intro before chatting with you, but to help us understand Kailash's significance, can you tell us what Mount Kailash is and why it's so significant for so many people? The shape of it and the location of it led
2: people to... uh... Think of it as a sacred place, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, maybe, maybe probably even predating the organized religion as we know it today in that region. Um, Because it almost, almost like a cone, a natural cone or a natural pyramid, you could say. I mean, it's got some facets to it, but it's, you know, it's just one, it's not two peaks. It's one single solitary peak with no other peaks nearby. It's on Mm -hmm. a plain plain. Um, it 's kind of in a, in a range, but it sticks way above everything else that 's in the area. right And uh, within say up to fifteen hundred years ago, it was by that time, maybe two thousand years ago, it was sacred to four religions: the Jain, the Hindus, the Tibetan Buddhists are all Buddhists, really, because it's considered sort of them both for Hindu and Buddhist mythology it's considered the physical embodiment of Mount Meru, which mm-hmm. is a mythical mountain at the center of the mythical cosmos that has all the islands that form the universe. The cosmos according to Hindu, Hindu and Buddhist cosmology. Okay, so Giants, Hindus, Buddhists, and Bonpa. Bonpa is the pre-Buddhist religion of Tibet that's sort of animist, but they do have a pantheon it's so similar to Tibetan Buddhism that you even wear, the monks even wear similar looking robes. Uh, but really, Tibetan Buddhism borrowed, borrowed all that stuff from Bonpa or Bon, they would just call it Bon, B-O-N. And there are still practitioners of bone today. And also of all four of these religions, if they have a chance in, once in their lifetime, they need to make a pilgrimage to Mount Kailash and do the kora, which is one circuit or more if you can if you can handle it. I mean, the more circuits you do, the better. If you do if you complete three circuits, then then you're like your karma is like made for the next lifetime. And then if you can do. I know, there's like, you can uh, even attain nirvana within a uh, Buddhist belief if you do 108 koreas, and there are people that have done 108.
1: 108? Yeah. Okay, and it's a 50-plus kilometer route around yeah, or something, right? Yeah, 52
2: right? kilometers, and it's tough. It's, uh, yeah, it's not so tough for people to live at that altitude, I suppose. Okay. But, uh,
1: yeah. So what drew you, a guy who's most of the time based in Bangkok, to go and and do a core of Mount Kailash?
2: I'd read about Kailash so much, you know, and... and while studying these religions. For for Hindus, it's mainly the Shaiva sect, people who worship Shiva because they're considered the abode of Shiva. All right. He lives at the top of there, you know, and he comes down once in a while for this and that. But all the great tales about Shiva, like him, when he created Ganesh by chopping off the head of his son because he'd been away from Kailash so long that when he came back, his son had grown into a young man and he thought it was a suitor for his wife. Okay. And uh, in a fit of jealousy, chopped off his head with a sword. Immediately realized it was son. sun. Couldn't find the head because it flew away so far, and the nearest creature with the head was an elephant. So he chopped off the elephant's head and attached it to his son's body, and that's Ganesh. And that happened at the top of Kailash. Oh. So, yeah, after reading all this stuff, I really wanted to go. Uh, I'd always wanted to go. Uh, it always seemed a little bit beyond me. I started thinking seriously about it. So I went in 2015. A few years before that, a woman a friend of mine, a very famous photographer that does a lot of National Geographic, Alison Wright, she organized a private tour, just herself, me, and, you know, I think it was 10 other people, most of us in the media, just to go do a, a pilgrimage to do the, the traditional kora. That year, and so I was all signed up for it. I was a little bit, you know, I, uh, can I actually do this? Because it's a tough hike. It's, it's very cold. It's very high altitude. But I thought, you know, if I'm going to do it, i got to do it now. So I was ready to go do that trip. She was in a really bad car accident in Laos hmm. a few months before we were supposed to go. So it was canceled. Um, She ended up writing a book about that whole experience that was amazing called Learning to Breathe. And uh, so then I kind of abandoned those plans. That was probably around 2005, 2006, 2007 that she was going to do that. And uh, so I kept thinking it was always in the back of my mind, you know, I I want to do it. And uh, finally I just said, uh, you know, it's now or never. You know, I'm not getting any younger. It's not going to get any easier. Sure. If I don't do it now, it's just... And I think I was right because I don't think I could do it now. Five years later, I think I'm... I've aged just enough that I don't think I would do it now. I might, I might try it one more time. But when we get into the physical aspects of it, it's a, it's a trick.
1: So you went and did it in 2015. Was that yeah. for work, pleasure? Both? Yeah, I, 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 I did it for I, I organized
2: the thing through a, an agency in uh, Chengdu. That's what you have to go through a Tibetan or a Chinese travel agency, but they're run by Tibetans usually. Called Tibet Vista and I, it was a personal trip for me but of course i wanted to get an assignment and i got an assignment from travel leisure okay you know right before i went and then i ended up writing it up for them and it turned out to be a terrific terrifically received story It was thirty three thousand four hundred words it was the longest story this travel leisure ever ever published and uh so i you know i had a, it kind of paid my expenses and not much more i went on a 21 day trip organized trip with other people that had signed up for it and um It was great because we went all across Tibet slowly, you know, from east to west because it's it's in far west Tibet. You know, by the time you get within a few days of getting there, you're like, man, this is like, where am
1: I? So 21 days, which actually my next question was like, it is in far western Tibet. So how do you even get there? Like, okay, a 21 day trip. How do you start and how long to get
2: there? There were 13 of us in the trip. And uh, so you spent a few days climatizing to the altitude. Yeah. In Lhasa, which is, you know, the highest capital in the world, it's like 8,000 feet. I forget what that is in meters. And then we take a slow manure We just had a, like a, a bus, just like a, a bus. bus, a small bus. Okay. That belonged to, I guess, you know, they probably chartered it, the travel company. Had a great Tibetan guy. Okay. A uh, guy that he, that he, his, the core we did with him was his 50th. So he's well on his way to the 108th.
1: Halfway mark almost. Yeah.
2: And, uh, of course, it was really easy for him. We had two yaks to carry stuff, but we, the, the yaks were higher there but on the way we stopped at north face of the everest base camp so we went there yeah that was also very high and that was sort of a warm-up trek i mean it was just a half day trek but it's just getting to the camp from the nearest um i've ridden a bike there settlement yeah, yeah you're oh, at like yeah.
1: 5002 yeah. and then it's 5003 up to yeah. the yeah and, and it, so you went to that monastery and correct yeah. we yeah. tented next to that right. for two nights so you know how that feels you know, yeah. that's on a bicycle. jesus it's rough Yes, slow going me. yeah yeah it's just walking
2: a slow going every 10 meters I'm stopping yeah and what what's ironic about the time I picked it was September it was, you know, I scheduled for September second or third week of September to start out of Chengdu and uh, I flew from here to Kunming Kunming to Lhasa so not out of Chengdu uh, we all met in Lhasa but a few about a month or two before we were scheduled to go we got an email everyone on that trip 13 of us signed up they said, "Oh, you know, there's a problem. Uh, it's that that week is part of a two-week celebration celebrating the Chinese liberation, so-called liberation of Tibet." Right. And they're not issuing any permits to, to uh, Tibet no. at that time, including for Chinese citizens. Okay. So we can't do it. And uh, of course, we'll refund your money, or uh, hopefully, you want to reschedule we can go. You know, there's one more departure in October, and that's it. Or you can wait till next year. And uh, so I was like making plans. I think I was trying to go on the October. Departure, and then like two weeks before, they wrote us all of us again and said, "Miraculously, we got permits for you. We hmm. I don't know how, but we got. It. We're not supposed to be able to do it, but we did it." So I, I highly recommend this agency. The fact that they were able to do that. So when we arrived in Lhasa, what we found out was that we were the only thirteen people in Tibet with. So we were the only people on. Kailash, besides local pilgrims, Tibetans, not even Hindu pilgrims who walk from Nepal usually. Right. And they usually get special dispensation to eat, you know, easier permits and everything. No Indians, no Chinese, and no, no Europeans. Wow. Um, so that made it really special, I That's think. Incredible. And I felt really lucky also.
1: Cool. How, so how many days to get to the start of this trip? I think if you just drove
2: straight, you could probably get there in six days? I'm not really sure. It took us 21. Well, 21 included the course, the so. Sure. It was like So uh, a week to get there yeah, on your trip yeah, but, or something. You know, we stopped here and there. We went to other monasteries and Okay. You know, there's after you after uh, Everest and you keep going, you start getting to this really high the highest highway in the world. Incredible scenery. We passed supposedly we passed forty four glaciers. I know I saw a handful of them. We visited a couple of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went to a festival somewhere that was, you know, just happened to be happening in one of the small towns. It was sure. very colorful. Um, and we were staying at the, the Accommodations got increasingly primitive, you know, yeah. you know, outhouses and super cold, you know, unheated rooms and all that.
1: So what what is a typical day on
2: trail like? So you start, you know, at dawn on the first day, you got 11 kilometers the first day. And what kind of altitude are you starting at? Uh, it's 1,000 down from, 6,000 meters is the highest point we went on the trail, so 5,000 meters. You know, Holy crap, 5, so you're starting at 5,000, yeah. all right, all right. Yeah, starting at 5,000, and you have to, so the first day is 11 kilometers, and it's sort of like, you know, you're kind of going up and up, but it's not that extreme of an ascent, Um sure. sure how many meters, but the second day, that's the ball buster, the second day is 20, first of all, it's 22 kilometers that's at that altitude, on foot. Half marathon at altitude? And and you reach a pass at 6,000, they call it, it's called the valley of death or something like that, when you pass through it, you're like, if you've made it that far, you're cleansed of All your sins for that lifetime, supposedly. That's a thousand meter ascent on foot in one day. So that's enough to like put you in, to push you over into altitude signals. So once you hit that pass called Darla on that second day, and at that, we started like at six, I think we got to the pass about 9 a.m. We were told not to linger. Sure. Because you want to get down again from there. So we descended like another another 1,000 meters. But uh, what happened to me was we had... The group was a mix of ages. I was by far the oldest person on, on the trip. And uh, some of the people were really fit. There were four guys. There were two Canadian guys that were really fit. They had done a lot of trekking in Canada and in the and stuff. And there was an Austrian guy who was also super fit. And he was the second oldest guy. He was he was around 50. And he had done a lot of Himalayan treks. But he was actually having trouble. Um, mm. He was having a lot of trouble. And there was a couple... San Francisco, that was like Silicon Valley, you know, highly accomplished professionals, Indian nationals, immigrants, but, and they were in their mid-40s and they were super fit. And then there was a Hungarian woman who was, I would say, at a level of fitness I'm at, which was, you know, medium low, I suppose. Because of these differences in age and fitness levels and all of that, and the pacing, we quickly just, we didn't travel, we lost, by the end of the first day, we were like, we'd met up that night, but we weren't really trekking together. Sure. And the, the all, all the slowest people were in the back, and the fastest four guys it was two Canadians, a Swiss guy who'd grown up in the Alps, and a German guy who was like a German industrialist, but he was like a devout Hindu. And this was a serious pilgrimage for him. He wasn't so fit, but he was just so dogged that he, he was right up there in that, that group of four. So they left the rest of the group in the dust. Everyone else was mostly slower than me, including this fit couple from San Francisco, which I thought was weird. So on that second day, one of the Swiss guys stayed by my side all the way up to the pass, because he was ah, just a nice guy, you know? He was like yeah. making sure I made it. And, sure. You know, kind of helped me up. Camaraderie's here. good on the trail. Yeah, and then when he got to the pass, he said, you're okay now, this is the hardest part of it, this is what they say. So I'm gonna, if it's okay, I'll just go on and ask you, sure, of course, don't, don't wait for me, I'll make it from here. And I got separated from the rest of the group. I never saw anyone else the entire second day. I got completely <laughs> lost. Oh no. I had no idea where I was going, I had no food. I had a boiled egg for breakfast. I had a chocolate bar that I ate at the pass at the top of the pass and that was nine AM. And then I walked nine and a half hours alone with no food and not knowing where I was going. This is why the story this is what made the story for travel and leisure. Okay. Gotta have some drama. Sure. You know, and then it happened. It happened big time. The, the descent, you know how it is, you know, walking downhill is, is in many ways tougher. For sure. You know, the knees start to ache yeah. after after a few hours and you slip a lot more. I mean there's a lot, there's a very gravelly surface coming down from that pass on the second day. And, I, you know, I was falling on my ass over and over again. But, yeah, I, I was feeling pretty good because it was clear at that point where the trail was. And I could see this river valley. And they said, always keep the mountain to your right. You know, I could see, the, you know, the, the peak of the mountain because we're like maybe a third of the way up the mountain. You don't actually go to the peak or anything. Sure. You're just doing it around them. Going clockwise, of course. It, only one of the four villages goes anticlockwise, and that's the Bonpa. Okay. They do everything backwards. And they, they go the opposite way. And... Um, there were hundreds and hundreds of yaks up there, just herding, you know, grazing. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of yaks to keep me company. I had one bottle of water. Well, that was stupid, I should have carried two, but I finished the water, maybe. So I, okay, anyway, I came down that, that gravelly slope, which was a couple hours on the own, thinking I pretty much knew where I was going, because you see this river valley to the left, the peak to my right. But then it got to where I was coming back up again. I got to this beautiful glacier and this pool of aquamarine cold water, like fresh spring water. and the river was obscure I couldn't see the valley still got the mountain on the right and as I moved away from the glacier the trail's just going in every direction it was like a honeycomb Oh, just like I'm like it just wasn't clear yeah so I'm just you know picking at random and it, one, one honeycomb after another I kept having to make decisions kept just trying to go on intuition and really not sure but I'm also figuring I'll find somebody I'll run into one of the, someone that's ahead of me right or I'll find a village that's got a shack or the yak herder you know somewhere there'd be some some way i can you know feel better about this or if you know i'm desperate i could just but none of that was happening now, i just wasn't seeing anyone uh i did come across a woman an old lady that was like norm, in normal times she'd be feeding pilgrims like sending giving them snacks and stuff but she was in business because it was that week with no tourists okay but she gave me a bottle of water and she, I, I tried to buy it from her and she wouldn't, she wouldn't take money for us yeah so, so i got nice. a bottle of water that was really nice it really made me feel encouraged and then it was getting to be, you know, mid to late afternoon. I'm thinking, geez, you know, what am I going to do if I, by the time the sun goes down, I know it's going to hit zero free, you know, pretty yeah. soon after sunset at this altitude. And I haven't found a place. I haven't met anyone. What am I going to do? And I had visions. I had seen that movie. What's the moment that they ran out of be, uh
1: Oh, The Revenant?
2: Yeah, how he cuts a horse open. And right, right, right. I thought, well, I'll have to fucking kill a yak. get a sharp rock cut it open and sleep inside the yak I mean it's just a distant fantasy the way I'd be capable of it but you know I didn't just a desperate measures you know maybe but then right around that time there was this raven it's the highest flying bird in the world it's Mm a raven
1: wondering if it was real at that point or delusional and and it 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 would fly over (laughs) me
2: go ahead it kept coming back and flying over me one time a couple times it flew so low that I could hear its wings flapping you know it sounded like fabric and uh, and then it started coming, back, and then I, I just suddenly got it in my head, you know, I think this crow or this raven knows the way. I think if I just follow the flight of this raven, maybe I'll be all right. Maybe I'm starting to elucidate, really, you know, yeah. having delirium or something. But I didn't, what, I, what else am I going to do? So that's what I did. I just kept whatever trail, trail I could see the raven ahead on, and he would double back and go forward. I followed that trail, and then uh, it was nine and a half hours later, so like 6 p.m. perfectly. Yeah, the sun's starting to go down. Now I'm really getting desperate. And I can barely, I'm fucking exhausted at this point. Sure. I'm freezing and I'm exhausted. But I'm just putting one, you know, you got to do it, just keep going. I had enough energy, you know, how to survive this thing. But I was in bad shape. I was in bad shape. My knees were hurting, my ankles were hurting. Altitude fatigue you get, you know. Right. I had a headache. And I saw, and the trail I was on was descending. And then at this time, I'm starting to feel kind of confident that I am going the right way because... I can see it's getting bigger. And this is like a, many people walking on this trail. I think this is heading the right direction for sure. And it was descending, which was good, I was feeling. We're descending, I know you're supposed to descend by the end of the second day. But we're supposed to all meet at this village where we're supposed to stay. I have no idea where it is. But I see a village also in the distance It's 500, roughly 500 meters, but an ascent. And I was thinking, you know, I have just enough energy to walk up there. I don't think I can walk any further, but you know, there's structures there I'll find. Something. And I walked up there, and it was the one, it was the village it was supposed to be. And the four guys were there. The rest of the crew. Still behind. Still behind. They all arrived wide, wide, well after dark. Two of the people had hypothermia. Okay. Two People had altitude because they had oxygen, they were treating them. And so I actually got off pretty well, other than the, the scaring and the fright of right. being lost. But uh, physically, I was actually okay once I got my boots off and laid down and had some food, you know. Sure. Lucky for the Raven. Yeah, 22 kilometers. And then the next day it was 11 kilometers. Beautiful, very easy, mostly descending. Got to where you're following a river. But I, when I, when I got back and I was preparing to write the story, I thought, well, I gotta find out what I'm, kind of bird this, because I'm gonna talk about this bird in the story for sure. You know, again, you know, like, you have the drama of getting lost and then the savior, so to speak. And so I, I gotta find out what it is, and I quick quickly found out, you know, figured out this Tibetan Raven, highest flying bird in the world, and in Tibetan mythology, it's a guardian deity who takes care of people <laughs> when they're in trouble. So I was like,
1: perfect, man. I'm a believer. (laughs) Okay. So the trek is three or four days? Three Three days. Three days. Mm -hmm. She did it all in three days. That's pretty quick. 52 kilometers, yeah. Okay. And on the trail, like, you have yaks carrying your stuff, you said? Yeah, but it
2: was way behind, you know. It was like (laughs) two yaks, but they were in the, the slow group. So the slow group and the guide. So, I mean, to my mind, they only had one guide. They should have had, you know three guys one for the middle one for the front one sure. for the back
1: somewhere along the way and, uh, so are there people setting up camp and cooking for you or do you have to take care of all that yourself um, let's see the first night
2: so it's actually two nights on the Cora so the first night you're actually leaving from like a very funky guest house in that little town which I should forget the name of so the two nights there, they, they have these guest houses for people to stay at and they're super super rustic I mean just stone houses no eating but the food was, food was alright it's just like home cooked Charcoal pot, and uh,
1: so you just get, and get and in your tea. sleeping bag. Fun you have tea, whatever yeah. the person there is cooking. Exactly. So it's pretty basic. It's it's Very a basic. it's a rough trip, yeah. yeah? Okay, basic. and there's no, I mean, there's potentially a dumpster question, but there's no hotels or stuff no, around this no, thing. Like zero.
2: if you go in from, that town and where you start from, but even there, the you know, I walked around, of course, in my little way, anyway, you know, before. Just to see the lay of the land. And uh, yeah, there were maybe the best looking hotels that I saw looked like, you know, really bad three stars. Stayed, I think it was by design, was that they want you to have a Tibetan experience. We stayed at Tibetan run guest houses where Tibetan pilgrims stay. Right. So they had, uh, they would have like in the restaurant area, the eating area, they would have these cast iron stoves, beautifully built, they really long, you know, like three meters long. It would jet out into the room, and it kept you very toasty, warm. And,
1: okay, so it yeah. warms, cooks. Yes, so yes. it's either that or tents or something yeah. along the way. That's and right. A little bit of a crew. And Did you see the tents
2: near Everest uh, Base Camp, the ones made out of yak wool? these black. I did. Yeah, yeah. And, they, and they have those same stoves inside, and you can okay. sleep there.
1: So this, this trek is, you want to have done some hiking. You yes. need to be comfortable with simple yes. places to sleep and food.
2: And Definitely. It's rustic. Okay. Very rustic. And, you know, not want to go to the toilet. It means, you just leave, you walk out, you know, and there's an outhouse, you know, there's like a, or sometimes not even a, an outhouse, just a hole in the ground, they direct you to a to pit. Yep. You know, you just go in the pits.
1: Tell us about the belief system around Kailash. Well, uh, the other thing about
2: it too is that, you know, in a way it's seen, because both Hindus and, and Buddhists at least, probably giants as well, or oh, bone pot, bones for sure as well, they have stupas of a kind. In, you know, in, in Hindu religion, they call it shikara, it's like a tower. That's just for worshiping. That's associated with temples, just like every temple has a Buddhist stupa in, in the Buddhist world. And sometimes you have standalone. So this was always considered like a natural stupa. So that's one of the reasons you do a quorum, just as you would do a certain amount of stupa. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, that's a ritual, especially among Hindus, and we know this also in Cambodia, with Hindus and is that you do a ritual bathing before you worship, you know, to cleanse okay. the body. So it's usually a, a tank that's built, but there's this Manusvar Lake, this natural, one of the highest... It is the highest natural lake in the world. One of the highest natural lakes in the world. And it's just before you get to uh, Kailash. And so we stopped there as well. And it's very cold water. But you know, but <laughs> anyone feeling devout went inside. And I didn't go inside. It's, it's too cold to me. But uh, about a half dozen people did. And actually the German guy who was really into Shiva, he was in there. And he was collecting pebbles to put on his altar back at home, he said. Okay. In Germany. So that's when you visit, you do that. All the Hindus and Buddhists they go to that lake first, and they bathe in it. And then they do the Korah. Yeah, and that, that's basically it. They, they they feel like they've visited the center of the
1: universe. And I've read that some people, real devout people, not only walk around it, but prostrate every step along the way, and it takes them, like, I saw, months.
2: I saw Tibetans doing that. I saw, t- like, little Tibetan grannies. You know, I, it made me feel really uh, inadequate. You know, it's like... Of course, they live at altitude, so they weren't suffering from the altitude, but they were prostrating every step.
1: So they take a step, they go down, kind of yeah. on their knees, yep, almost lay down on their they stomach. They do lay
2: down all the way down and do a pranam with their hands, like a prayer gesture. Do like this, and then stand back up, walk a step, and do another one. Uh, yeah, I don't know how long it takes them. I wouldn't. I I've
1: long. read months, but unless I mean, straight. incredible. So, is this something? that only devoutly religious people should do? Or is it something that a non-religious person a non-religious would draw person value from?
2: I think a non-religious person would draw value from this trek. It's a heck of a trek. Beautiful, beautiful scenery. Okay. And a real test if you want to test yourself. You know, <laughs> trekking at altitude, a right, physical test. And it's, you know, you know, what happens when you trek at altitude, you've had this too, you know. It's, it's great fitness, because you, you're training under less oxygen, right? And so you come back to right. sea level and you're Superman. Sure. Everything is just amazing. You know, sex is amazing. <laughs> you know, walking down the street is amazing. You just feel like you're at the top of the universe. The so that's strongest kind of a person. After have. effect. Right. You know, nice side benefit. Um, and the cultural aspect. I mean, was, for me, a whole, the whole trip was so interesting, especially the further we got from Lhasa and the Chinese rule and military, although they did have military camps throughout. It wasn't like, you, know, you never get to a peace or to that's that's completely unsupervised by the Chinese, but <laughs> less and less so the further you've got. And so just to see Tibetan people living their regular lives, you know, you see nomads in nomad camps with tents and uh, herds of yak. Yeah, you see lots of wildlife too. Antelopes, I saw antelopes.
1: Interesting, yeah. I mean, when I was in Tibet, I think this was just before the Beijing Olympics. Yeah. It seemed like people were kind of restricted and had been relegated to second-class citizens. Did they seem like they were living their regular lives out there and as they wish? Yeah, that's what I felt.
2: And also... you know, my Tibetan guy was pretty honest about stuff. He was like, you know, he, 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 his natural inclination, and, his, and he was candid about it, was to wrinkle against Chinese-related. Like but he also would admit that the Chinese that had actually done some good things. You know, I, I wouldn't say that I'm, I never really asked him directly, like, oh, well, we did the good things outbalance the bad things. Sure. Like, we never got that far in the discussion. But uh, he said health has improved, for example. And there's more hospitals, more roads, uh, more schools, and all of that.
1: Okay, yeah. so let's say someone decides they want to go to the far west of Tibet and do yeah. this. How do you how do you even begin to plan?
2: Yeah, you've got to find an agency that issues those permits. Okay, I highly recommend my agency, Tibet Vista. I'm I'm going to do it again. My next trip, when they when it opens again, I want to go back to the same area but go further than Kailash, further west to the remains of the Guda Kingdom, which is a real really one of the oldest Tibetan, like as we know it, like Lamaist kingdom centers. Right. And I had a friend that went there once and said, it's just amazing, you yeah, know, a little type huh. So I want to see that. I just want to experience more in Tibet. I don't want to challenge myself quite as much physically.
1: Yeah. Next time. I'd like to go And You know, you were talking about the fitness of the people in your group. The few times I've been at altitude, i found it's often the fittest guys that got altitude sickness. And there's no real correlation between your ability to, say, yeah. run a half marathon or altitude.
2: I know it's the same thing. And my personal speculation is... That maybe one factor is that fit people push themselves a little more because they... I don't doubt it. You know, because you can't push yourself, you know. Mm. The harder you push, you know, the sickness, altitude, whatever you call it, syndrome, pushes back. You know, it doesn't, you know, it, you don't want to exhaust yourself. You want to you know, take it. And he they, they kept telling us that. The guy he says, don't, you know, I don't care how I fit you are. Take slow. I and mean, when we had people even in just Everest base Camp area and that uh, who were hallucinating, you know, they got... There was a woman, a young, relatively young woman. I forgot where she was from, uh, Holland or something. Probably early 30s. And she just left the group and was talking to herself. So, you know, <laughs> and they had to put her in a tent with oxygen. Oh, really? So you are yeah.
1: hiking with oxygen and stuff? Yeah, as we as had well.
2: plenty of oxygen. I never had to do oxygen. I actually came out pretty good. I remember when we arrived, one of the things that you you might want to prepare is, you know, Dymox, you know, that, yeah. that this it's illegal. It's banned in China. I didn't know that before I went. So I planned to buy it when I got to Lhasa. So we grouped at a hotel And uh, so I went to a pharmacy and we had a break. I went to the first pharmacy. I saw, you know, it looked like a fairly modern. I said, like some Diamox. He said, here. we don't have any Diamox. I went back to our leader, the Tibetan guy we had. And I said, wow, I just found out Diamox is banned here. But surely there must be some leftover Diamox. You know, can you help me find some Diamox? I bet you know where to find it. He said, not really, but that stuff doesn't really work that well. And he says, I got some Tibetan herbs. Okay. They took me to a Tibetan pharmacy. And the whole time, I took Tibetan herbs according to what the, the instructions they gave me. And I really fared pretty well. I never uh, I never got delirious. I had The uh, first few days, I had a headache. I had the fatigue, but I wasn't as extreme as some... I don't know. I did okay. Um, I don't think it was because I was less fit. But maybe the herbs helped, and also I didn't push it too hard. I, I, you know, I let myself fall behind if I... I didn't force myself to keep up with anyone. But, you know, it was it's funny. The, a lot of the fittest people were in the back. I I did have after effects. So I, I noticed on the, you know, on the ride back, oh, well, I should know how many days it takes to drive because then we pretty much just drove straight back and we stopped once or twice. I think it was two nights on the way back. So three three days' drive. That's what it is. I think it's a three-day drive, basically. Yeah, that's the, as quick as you can make it, you know, if you're not speed demon or something. But anyway, I noticed on the way back... Uh, the real pain in my knees and ankles i started feeling on the way back like on the bus we'd stop and i was like hobbling a bit and, and i took a look and i i noticed that my knees and ankles my knees were like 30 percent larger and my ankles were probably double the normal size so okay and and as i found out later when i so i that pain with you know when I, by the time i got back to bangkok swelling was still there and i had a lot of pain especially in the knees i had a really hard time going down downstairs for about a week, after about a week, I decided I'm going to go see someone about this. And I went to, I got a name of the knee specialist at 78, and he said, All right, here's what's happened. When you're stressing your joints at that altitude and there's less oxygen, they react. It's as if you're working them, you know, four times as hard. The right. so less oxygen means they're going to swell more. So you've had, well, basically what's going on, I, I thought maybe I damaged my knees permanently almost. You know, I was thinking, You I fuck, I know, fuck I'm fucked my, I'm now, you know, but panicking a little. He was saying, Yeah. All of the internal ligaments and other, you know, soft tissue areas and semi-soft tissue areas are are swollen, and it's going to take a while. And you and she's going to have to rest. and Don't go th- if it hurts to walk up downstairs. Don't walk up downstairs. Just take it easy uh he recommended flotation therapy so i went every day for an hour a day for a week the following week to one of the flotation tanks. that was very relaxing and i rubbed boxing oil in which is you know boxing liniment muay thai liniment after another it took about after about a month it was pretty much back to normal but i still had residual pain in my right knee that just was there every day so i got on the internet and i and i found this stuff just to make a long story short i was looking at all kinds of remedies that People had a similar situation, you know, after physical stress. Green lipped muscle extract. You ever heard that? No. Yeah, so uh, it was recommended by a lot on the internet. So I thought I'd give it a try. So I bought a big jar of this. It was online and, it right. came. and within a week, taking it, all, all the pain in the knee stopped. Really? And I've been taking it ever since. So I've been taking it for five years. And when I run out, within about two, to three weeks, I get that pain in the right knee
1: again. There's a book we've talked about quickly when you were on the show before, but uh, you and I were chatting about. Uh, Just before we started talking about Kailash, and I know it's out of print, but Buddhist Stupas of Asia. Where does that book sit with you in your mind now, having been years in the past that you wrote it? And uh... There's
2: actually some material in there in the Tibet chapter. I talk about Kailash quite a bit. So that was my first research on Kailash and and cosmology and all that. So that's in there. But um, yeah, it's one of my favorite books. I mean, my two favorite books that I've done of all the coffee table books I've done. Or that one, this Buddhist Stupas in Asia and My Sacred Tattoos in Thailand, because, aside from the fact that they're interesting topics to begin with, all my books are interesting topics, pretty they much. sure. Uh, I own most of them. Maybe yeah. the, I mean, not the cookbooks. <laughs> but um, I did original research in both of those. So, you know, I did, you know, using my background and my minimal background, but still it was academic background in art history and in uh, South Asian civilization. I, I did original research for both of those books, and in the case of the... Especially in the Stupa book, because there was no integrated theory of how stupas work within Buddhism, it was just sort of considered a memorial thing, you know. But it's more than that; it's a time capsule. When I came up with this idea, it's a time capsule, yeah, a spiritual time capsule, and a little bit more than that. So yeah, so that book is very near and dear to my heart, and I hope to republish it one day soon. You know, I've got all the rights to all the text reverted to me from Lonely Planet Publications, who put it out as a and they're a very short-lived illustrated mm-hmm. book series. So it came out in 2000. was out of print by 2010, I think. So I want to do it again.
1: I yeah, you should. You it. gave me a copy years ago. And any listeners, I mean, I'm sure you can find it on Amazon somewhere. Yeah, it's around rare booksellers. It hopefully is worth a ton of cash on reseller market. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, well, okay, last one. I know that you've been hit hard by COVID. I mean, you're, you're a travel writer-based yeah. guy. So any irons in the fire? What's on your horizon?
2: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's tough for people making a living writing about travel. I mean, luckily I'm in Thailand, and where we're relatively free to travel, mm-hmm. well, we're totally free to travel, and there's still demand for content in Thailand, so I'm able to write about Thailand, um, I'm able to write about memories that I've had in other places. So I am still, you know, I'm still selling writing. I haven't traveled since February 15th. I came back from a trip to the Shan State in Myanmar and I haven't been out of the country since then. And my average, I usually am in a different country every three weeks. Every three weeks. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So this is very unusual for me to. I, don't, I haven't been sitting in one country this long since maybe 80, 87 I think was the last 87. time I can remember. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, six months was well, more than six months. it's Almost a year, in in one country, and I, I'm actually enjoying it. I'm not, You know, the danger is I might get too settled, and I don't know. But I, I've got lots of plans. I My whole bucket list has changed, you know, of course. I'm sure everyone's the same. It's like all the places you were planning to go before this happened, probably your priorities have shifted a little bit. You know, like maybe that, that beach vacation you used to take every year to the exact same place. Now you're thinking, you know what? I've already been there 10 times. Right. I want to see something different next time. Sure. And maybe that trip to like that wild place that you were saving for later, like Kailash maybe, you might want to do it. You know, you might feel like you want to do it right away. But who knows when the next pandemic would be get some travel done while you can you know and get hit those but for me this my bucket list is uh, tunisia and algeria i want to go there pretty soon you know when I, when I when the opportunity comes it was a little bit further down the list now it's higher on my list so to speak and also okay. romania i want to get to romania and moldova
1: uh for listeners go to talktravelasia.com on the show notes we will put up the link to joe's story he wrote for travel leisure about this we'll have some photos from his journey and maybe a link to the tour agency you did too, as you can. spoke recommend. highly recommend. Yeah. Well, thanks, Joe. I've, I've told you many times you're super generous with your time and fascinating guy. Thanks for
2: sharing with Always us. Always fun to talk to you, Scott. Thanks. You guys do a good job.
0: Hey Scott, I uh, I just got done listening to your interview, and uh, I, it's too bad I couldn't have been there. But uh, really interesting stuff. I took a bunch of notes. Um, you know, I'd love to to talk to Joe about it next time uh, I get a chance to see him. That was some really interesting stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, I really like the idea of walking around a big mountain. For some reason, when I've been to the temples of Angkor, I, I kind of like walking around the outer fortifying walls for whatever reason. And yeah, I I. I I think like well, I don't have the spiritual reason to go to Kailash. I just like the idea of being out there for a few days, being around people that are there for a specific reason. And yeah, he's definitely piqued my reason again, I, I, or my interest. I'd really like to again fly to Humla in in Western Nepal and then hike north and up towards Kailash. So
0: yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. It's a mission, though, man. I mean, I, a couple of notes I made that I thought were, were kind of funny was that, like, the Everest base camp was the warm-up trek. It's like, oh, we did a warm-up trek around the base camp yeah. of Everest, you know? And the other thing was, you know, in the beginning, I was like, oh, it's a four-day trek to get around. But it, it took them six days to get there, or six days minimum just to, to get to this place, you know?
1: Yeah, you're looking at two weeks' travel just out and back before you even do it. So, yeah, it is very remote. And on the thing or remote, the one tale that really kind of got me is how he got lost, right? I mean, you would just yeah. figure you're walking around this big mountain. It's always on your right, like you follow the path. But I mean, that was a, a pretty epic tale that he was getting close to it getting dark and being stranded out in the middle of nowhere. So it shows even when you're on a, a quote unquote organized tour, when you're out in the great outdoors in these places, you, you got to be really, really careful and the altitude can be a factor. Yeah, you, you can't be overprepared. I mean, that part really struck me.
0: Yeah. You know, I, it's funny cause I even wrote a note. I, I wrote down that I liked the fact that you can't really get lost on a trek like this because you just keep the mountain <laughs> on your right. And then he goes yeah. on and tells the story about this Raven that he followed. And like, uh, you know, it was just perfect. It was almost like it was, it was better that he got lost so that he could have that type of experience, you know?
1: it certainly makes for great travel talk doesn't it and uh, just a reminder to all of you that have just enjoyed listening to this Trevor and I do this uh, you know for the love of travel and there's costs so we're asking you to please help financially support the show you can do that by going to patreon.com circ talk tra- search talk travel asia and you can sponsor from as little as 1 a month and up that's it just a dollar or more a month. And we give our patrons um, little bonus episodes here and there, links to videos, et cetera. So there is something in it for you too. So thanks. And Trevor, there's one other thing that can really help us, right?
0: Sure. If you're listening to the show on SoundCloud or iTunes, uh, if you could go ahead at the end of this episode and just give us a rating, you know, if you, if you loved it, give us a five, if it was uh, good enough, give us a four, you know, and, and then let us know why you can make a little comment there in the rating as well. Um, but yeah, go ahead and do that. Otherwise go to our website, talktravelasia.com. Uh, we have uh, show notes there, uh, links to everything about Joe, the story of Joe's trip, uh, the company that arranged the, the trip for him and a Google map, uh, of uh, his adventure. So uh you know check out our social media, look at some uh, gallery photos of his trip and uh and then come back in two weeks uh, we'll have another good episode for you.
1: Thanks for joining us on Talk Travel Asia. We look forward to
0: sharing with you again soon. Hey Scott, do you remember the time we walked on top of the wall at Angkor Tom and Cam-